3: The moon, an inspiration for poets, lovers, and space enthusiasts. But although the moon has been dutifully orbiting the Earth for more than 4 billion years, it's done so in splendid isolation.
4: All that changed in July 1969, of course, when something appeared in the black lunar skies that had never before. A piece of human-made hardware come to visit, and it carried members of the species that had constructed it
3: For three years, the Apollo program rocketed astronauts to our natural satellite. In total, 12 men stomped their boots in the sticky lunar dust. And then in
4: 1972, an astronaut climbed a ladder back into an Apollo descent module and bid farewell. We leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. Gene Cernan was the last man to speak words on the moon and walk its dusty regolith. No human has ever been back, and so the four billion years of silence resumed, although Captain Cernan is making noise about it here on Earth.
3: Gene, you were the last guy on the moon. When you stepped back into the module, did you know that you would be the last guy on the moon?
5: Well, we knew Apollo 17 was the last flight of Apollo. And I sort of figured I'd be the last man on the moon in the 20th century. But here I am 43 years later, still the last man on the moon. Give me a break. That tells us what we have not done in the last four decades.
3: If they put you in charge of the program, what would you do
5: differently? We'd be back on the moon by now. We'd be developing the moon, the resources. And if I had been elected president 40 years ago, we'd be on our way to Mars long ago. Now, it sounds easy, and maybe it sounds easier to say than do, but it could be done and we could have done it. We were ready to do it. It's the most disappointing thing in the world for me today to have this yoke over my shoulders being called the last man on the moon. Oh, you know, fine, that's great. It's a handle people put on me. But the reason behind this documentary of mine is to stimulate and inspire those young kids because one of them's out there today and they're going to take us Not only the moon. I don't know whether you will. I won't. But one of us will be around to see him go to Mars. Thanks, Gene. Thanks very much. Thank you.
4: Gene Cernan is an astronaut. His documentary film is The Last Man on the Moon. I'm Molly Bentley.
3: I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology in this episode... So why didn't the U.S. fulfill Captain Cernan's hopes to put us back on the moon by now? To answer that question, a look at why President Kennedy launched the Apollo space program and why NASA dropped the moon from its space itinerary. Then where we are today, which countries or companies have lunar ambitions? And why that legendary first step wasn't taken by a woman? despite the fact that in 1961, many had qualified as astronauts. We'll hear from one of the women of the Mercury 13.
1: To know where we're going, let's look at where we've been. I'm John Logsdon, Professor Emeritus at the Space Policy Institute, George Washington University. I work on the history and politics of the American and world space programs. We didn't go back to the moon, much to the
3: consternation of Captain Gene Cernan and, frankly, many other NASA watchers and space enthusiasts. Why not? Well, we need to know why we went in the first place. Dr. Logston reminds us that the Apollo mission wasn't launched as exploration for exploration's sake or even with scientific goals in mind, although those were later tacked on to the missions. It was straightforward politics.
4: In 1961, the name Yuri Gagarin was cruising the airwaves, much the way the Russian cosmonaut had orbited the Earth in a spacecraft, the first human to do so. He was the subject of anxious analysis on radio, TV, and in print. The space game for the U.S. was on.
3: Well, actually, the game was on, or at least the warm-up stretching was on, four years before Yuri made his debut, when the Soviets launched the first artificial satellite into space. I happen to remember where I was when I heard that news. I was reading the papers one morning while getting ready for school, and I asked my father what this meant, and he said... Now, well, this was serious news because it showed that the United States was way behind in getting into space. You read the papers as a young teenager every yeah, day? I, <laughs> yes. I, I, I was able to read. It turns out I was able to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our, maybe your point is this was before newspapers? Not quite sure. Well, <laughs> Before the internet. Okay. Well, certainly that. But the point is after we beat the Soviets to the moon, we lost a lot of our incentive to keep going back. And the accident aboard Apollo 13 was a sober reminder of the dangers involved. So the lunar ambitions of NASA that began
1: with Sputnik changed. Well, Sputnik was, if you want, strike one of the Soviet Union winning the competition in space, and you have to take a step back and people these days forget the zero-sum character of US-Soviet competition in the 50s and 60s. The Cold War was very real. We were hiding under desks because nuclear attack was imminent. And so when Gagarin went into space, Kennedy viewed it as strike too in a Soviet competition with the United States and was determined that there would be no strike three. So he asked his advisors, and I quote the memo he wrote in April 1961, find me a space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win.
3: So his interest was not in the uh, geology of the
1: moon or anything like that. It was simply strategic uh, Cold War thinking. Absolutely. Kennedy was not a space visionary. Uh, he knew very little about space, had not thought much about space before becoming president. And then he found space as a tool in U.S.-Soviet competition for world leadership. And that's why he was willing to invest the very large amount of public resources and technical talent in a space race. Because he figured winning that race, actually not even winning, I think it was entering with the intent to win achieved his goal. Uh, I think you could have stopped Apollo somewhere along the way and Kennedy's saying we're not going to be second in space to the Soviets would have been okay. But the program had so much momentum it carried through particularly after Kennedy's assassination became uh, a memorial to a fallen young president. Now really was there a race? I mean were the Soviets aiming for the moon? Were they planning to send men to the moon? Well Not during Kennedy's lifetime. There was a debate inside the Soviet Union, in fact, much more of a debate in that totalitarian society among the elites of whether it made sense to undertake a human lunar landing program. It was only in August of 64 that the Soviet Union leadership said, yes, we're going to do that. By then, Kennedy, of course, had been killed, and the U.S. was well down the path to success in Apollo.
3: All right, John, let's jump forward a couple of years. 1969, July 20th, we land on the moon. We keep sending people back to the moon for a while, and, and then we stop. And uh, well, why did we stop, actually?
1: Well, I think there are two reasons, at least two reasons. One is that each Apollo mission was very risky. And the people managing those missions knew that even before Apollo 13. But of course, Apollo 13 dramatized just how risky it was. And so NASA said our job was to get astronauts to the moon and safely back to Earth. We've done that. Let's quit while we're ahead. There was not a strong push to continue repetitive missions to the moon. And then At the presidential level, Nixon got spooked by Apollo 13. Uh, He got turned off with the idea of repeated missions to the moon. And so he was perfectly willing to let NASA cancel 18 and 19. And he wanted to cancel 16 and 17. He would have been happy with six missions to the moon instead of eight.
3: All right, so Nixon comes in. And NASA's asked to come up with a plan for what to do in space next, and they come up with a pretty ambitious plan. Everybody assumed, I suppose, the next step was Mars. I mean, from a naive point of view, that's the next next interesting destination out. But that didn't go
1: very far. Well, what NASA really wanted to do in the post-Apollo period was build a big space station. That was their post-Apollo goal. Uh, But they decided that you couldn't justify a space station without it being linked to some dramatic destination, and that destination was Mars. So Mars was, I don't think anybody seriously thought that Richard Nixon would approve a program as it was presented going off to Mars in the 1980s. But it provided a reason that you would need this intermediate step of a space station. And incidentally, a supply vehicle for rotating uh, crews and cargo called the space shuttle. I mean, the station was where the shuttle was supposed to shuttle to. Yeah,
3: and the shuttle became our space program, at least the manned space program, for a really
1: long time. And yet, I don't know, I think a lot of people didn't find it terribly exciting. Well, it wasn't supposed to be exciting. I mean, it was supposed to routinize access to space. I mean, we're kind of hoisted on our own rhetoric. If you're going to make access to space routine, then you can't also make it exciting. I mean, the launches were still excited. We all went and saw the thing go, and a human space launch is still one of the most exciting events to witness. But, you know, doing routine things in space is routine. (laughs) Well, so what's the situation
3: now? Because we're, we seem to be still, in, in a way, in the Nixon era, or is that unfair, in terms of our ambitions with manned spaceflight?
1: Well, I think we're transitioning. I think we're finally... The momentum established by Kennedy and modified by Nixon that led to station and shuttle, or shuttle and station, I guess is the right order, is beginning to peter out. I mean, when the shuttle now is grounded... We see the end of the station in sight. Mr. Obama set a goal in 2010 of getting to Mars in the 2030s, and I think there is a consensus that that is the right direction for the program, that if we're going to have a government program, it should explore, it should go somewhere beyond the immediate vicinity of the home planet. So I think we are in this kind of slow but real transition to a next era in space, which is the resumption of exploration more or less for its own sake. So finally, John, what do you say to people, and I'm sure you confront
3: many of them, who say... You know, sending people into space, it's just not cost-effective. The robots can do the science better, cheaper, and without any loss of life. You know, why should we be sending hominids beyond Earth anyway?
1: Well, the memo signed by NASA Administrator Jim Webb and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, May the 8th, 1961, recommending setting a lunar landing as a national goal, said it is men not merely machines that captures the imagination of the world. I think that's still true more than 50 years later. John Logston, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure.
4: John Logston is Professor Emeritus at the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University. Well, it's interesting to hear that the goal of going to Mars was one from the Nixon era, that it was that long ago that we had that aspiration.
3: Yeah, well, certainly it was because, look, we'd gone to the moon. Everybody was excited about going to the moon. This was the first step on the yellow brick road of space exploration. Everyone assumed we would keep going to the moon, but we didn't. That was a surprise. And they figured that the next place to go to was obviously Mars. That was beckoning us even back then. NASA was actually charged with coming up with a plan to go to Mars, to send people to Mars, not just hardware. And uh, they did that. And it came back uh, to George Bush Sr., who was president, and he presented it to Congress. It was like $500 billion, as I recall. It was called Battlestar Galactica, the rocket they were going to build because it was so huge. And, uh, you know, the politicians said, think again. I mean, that was entirely too much money. So we weren't going back to the moon and we weren't going to Mars either. It was kind of a disappointing uh, development because here we were. We had had finally gone to the final frontier, taken one step, and then kind of stopped. The public imagination
4: has been enthralled with the idea of Martians. How far back does that go?
3: Well, uh, that goes certainly back to the 19th century because, you know, there was this whole question of canals on Mars. But Mars was interesting from the beginning because it was the only planet you could see the surface of from the Earth with these small telescopes that we had.
4: Did the public become as enthralled with the Moon and the idea of their Of there being moon beans, beans, not beams, on the
3: moon? <laughs> moon beams. they are moon beams too, but, well, yes, the idea that the moon might be inhabited is fairly old. In fact, when I was a kid, there was a well-known comic strip, Dick Tracy, and they had plenty of moon creatures there, uh, presumably wearing moon boots. Yes, but actually by the 19th century, we knew that couldn't be the case because uh, astronomers noted that there was no atmosphere on the moon, uh, there was no water on the moon, and presumably there were no uh, moon beings either.
4: Mr. Logston said that NASA Administrator James Webb and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara wrote an analysis for President Kennedy that noted that men, and not merely machines, capture the imagination of the world. But what about women? After all, in 1961, more than a dozen
3: were qualified to go into space. Find out why they didn't. The story of the Mercury 13, including how one of them feels about it now. Next. It's Are We Over
4: the Moon? On Big Picture Science.
3: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X-N-A-S.
2: Eagle, you're looking great. Coming up nine minutes. We're now in the approach phase. Everything looking good.
3: Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, Gene Cernan, John Glenn, Buzz Aldrin, these men are instantly associated with the space program along with 27 other Apollo astronauts. In fact, they were the space program.
4: Here are some names that were part of the
3: unofficial space program. Jerry Cobb, B. Stedman, Janie Hart, Jerry Sloan Truhill, Rhea Allison Waltman, Sarah Gorlick Ratley, the twins, Jan and Marion Dietrich, Kay Kagel, Irene Leverton,
4: Janora Jessen, Wally Funk, and Jean Hickson.
3: Those 13 women were part of a privately funded program that in the early 1960s arranged for them to undergo the same physical and psychological testing as the male astronauts who were part of the Mercury program, the one that included John Glenn and Alan Shepard and preceded the Gemini and Apollo programs.
4: The women, who came to be known as the Mercury 13, underwent rigorous tests, sensory deprivation, submitting their bodies to x-rays, having ice water shot in their ears to induce vertigo. Aerospace historian Al Hallenquist tells us that they tested as well and in some cases better than the men. And while the Russian cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space in 1963, the Mercury 13 women never got off the
2: ground. There was a group of 80 women in 1959, 1960 that were asked to go through various medical testing that the Mercury astronauts went through. Those 80 were winnowed down to 13 that completed all of the testing. Uh, Jerry Cobb is the most recognizable of the group, and she was instrumental in picking the others to go through.
3: These 13 women, I mean, who, what was their background?
2: Where did these women go? They weren't just 13 random women. No, they were pioneer women in aviation back in the 50s. Cherry Cobb held a couple of world altitude records in her class airplane. She did overseas delivery of aircraft and a very well-known air racer at the time also. Most of the girls had a background in air racing, the best-known women pilots of that era. So who
3: approached them? Was it NASA? I mean, were they gearing up for one of their you know, early spaceflight
2: efforts, and they were contemplating using these women as pilots? Well, NASA never had any desire to use them as women because back in the time, women were barefoot pregnant and, you know, staying in the kitchen. And even though these women were, you know, as accomplished as they were, this was actually a private thing done by General Donald Flickinger and Randy Lovelace from the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Lovelace Clinic is who did the initial mercury astronaut testing and they did it to see how the women compared to the men. And the results of this physical testing was, is the women did as well, if not better in some areas than the men did. They were aware of that. They were aware of the test results, right? Correct. Okay, so did they fully expect themselves to be used in the space program? They were never promised a job, but it was suggested that if they did well enough, maybe they could go into space, but NASA ultimately put the kibosh on that.
3: So what was the program that they were possibly to be used for? Was it really the Apollo program or was it one of its precursors like Gemini or, you know, Mercury capsule or what?
2: Probably later Mercury, possibly Gemini. And and if they had been accepted into the program, they would have gone all the way through like they do now in the shuttle era.
3: Was it anything other than just, you know, the cultural norm that uh, was working against them? I mean, did people think, look, the women can't be aboard these capsules because of this, that, and the other? I mean, was there any real reason not to use them?
2: There was no legitimate reason other than the societal mores of the time that women just did not do those things. And there was also the concern on NASA's part that if they lost a woman, space is a very dangerous frontier, and it was still very new back then, that if they lost a woman, that that might cause them to lose the space program. So they were scared of that. But it was also the male-dominated era of the 60s that women didn't do those things. I have to say that this is, to me, pretty much a new story. And, you know, I figure I'm at least averagely conversant with the space program, and yet I don't know about this. Why not? Well, we do have a website, mercury13.com. There's been a couple of books written about it. And it's interesting. When people hear of it, they're fascinated and they flock to it, but it just doesn't get out enough. You know, I I just don't know why. But a couple of people have tried to put films together. Well, Well, what about the women themselves? I mean, surely
3: this must have been enormously frustrating. Here they were, you know, test pilots. They were motivated. They were excited about doing this. They pass all the tests. And then, well, they're just, you know, moved outside the door there.
2: Well, the stated excuse at the time was, is they needed to have jet fighter experience. Jerry Cobb was section to go to Pensacola to get some jet time, and before she could get into the cockpit, they go, no, they've pulled the plug on it. And so that was the stated reason, no jet time. But again, over the years, we found out Janie Hart was one of the Mercury 13, was married to Congressman Philip Hart back in the 60s, a Democrat, and he was the chairman of one of the committees. So Janie and Jerry Cobb testified before Congress, and John Glenn testified against them. John Glenn. John Glenn. Testified against these women. He did. What, what did he say? Basically, you know, uh, the men go to fight the wars, and the women stay home and support them. All right, so what has happened to these women? Uh, are most of them still around? There's a few still around. Jerry is still around, but she has pretty much withdrawn from public life. Janora Jessen is still with us. Um, Wally Funk, who is the youngest of the group. Um, Kay Cagle is with us, but she has... Some issues, as does Irene Leverton, but the rest are, have gone on. Or, Rhea Waltman and Sarah Ratley are still here.
3: And, and what do they have to say about the current situation? Because, of course, women, uh, you know, go up into space
2: now. They actually do it, and in, uh, in, in not insignificant numbers. No, not at all. And with tremendous work, look at Eileen Collins. And Eileen Collins is very supportive of them. And she invited the surviving members for her STS-93 launch. And I attended with them at the Space Center and had them as their guests in the VIP section. They're supportive of the women today. They're very supportive of the women today. And they're, they would like to have had more recognition than they have, but they know that they were never really promised anything. And it's not like their feelings are hurt because they were promised and had the rug pulled out. They're concerned because they had a chance to move ahead and do things. and We would have had women in space 20 years earlier had they done this, and there was no reason other than the societal norm that they did not go. Al Hallenquist, thanks so very much for speaking with me. Thank you very much for the story.
4: Al Hallenquist is an aerospace historian, and he is the keeper of the website mercury13.com.
3: If you heard the list of women's names who we recited earlier, you might recall hearing the name Sarah Gorlick Ratley. She was one of the Mercury 13 who underwent that astronaut testing more than 50 years ago.
0: The original tests were at the Lovelace Foundation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And what it was was a complete physical. Plus, they sent us up to Los Alamos, where they kind of put you on a... Bed and shoved you in to see if it bothered you, if you got claustrophobia or not. We were complete and total darkness.
4: How long did you have to sit in that?
0: I don't really remember, but I just was so determined that I was going to pass that it. it didn't faze <laughs> me.
4: What other physical tests did they put you through? I understand one of them was to put water, ice cold water well, in your ice ear? Ice
0: water in your ear. And the people there, the staff was extremely supportive. And what they told me to do was find a spot on the wall and just stare at it and don't pay any attention to anything else and you'll be okay.
4: And the purpose of this was to test how, how well you recovered?
0: Well, uh, I'm not sure what the purpose was, but I guess it was to put you in a strange environment and see if you could take the systems or the checks.
4: Mm-hmm. And some of the tests were also uh, psychological tests. Is that true?
0: Some of them were psychological. You know, you just give them the right answers, what they're looking for.
4: (laughs) Now, were you, the 13 of you separated? Were you isolated undertaking these tests, or were you able to do them as a group? Did you have any companionship?
0: Some of the girls were able to go in groups of two. I got called in at the last minute, and I went through them all by myself. But as I said, I found the staff completely supportive. And one of the nurses and I used to go to Old Town every night when we were supposed to be resting. You know, you're young, you just go. (laughs) How old were you? I think I was about 26.
4: These were secret tests, right? NASA didn't know anything about them.
0: Well, we were told to keep it quiet. I think NASA knew about them because we were supposed to go on to Pensacola. And so that's when I think NASA knew something was up.
4: Wait, why, why is Pensacola a red flag for NASA?
0: Pensacola is where the Naval Air Station is, and we were supposed to get some type of jet training there because none of us had flown jets before.
4: Did you fly a jet?
0: No, that was canceled the Friday before we were supposed to leave on a Monday. They said they didn't want women in the program at that time.
4: Up to that point, what were your hopes and and aspirations? Did you think that you would undergo these tests and then you would fly?
0: My hopes and aspirations were, yes, I hoped that I would fly, and I kept my hopes up because you never want to lose your dreams. And my dream was to go into space and to discover the unknown. You know, it was something different and progressive. I wondered what I could do to help the program and it, what amazing discoveries I could make.
4: It was extremely progressive because this was 1961 and the space program was still in its infancy.
0: Yeah, it was pretty new then, too. You know, the attitude at that time was, you know, like John Glenn said, men go off and fight the wars and the women stay at home. Well, we were trying to break the gas ceiling so that women could be recognized too and that people would be progressed only on their attributes not because of their sex religion or colors or skin or anything so that everyone would be accepted
4: so you were doing these tests that the male astronaut said undergone and as I understand, you did very, very well, and in some cases were better than your male counterparts. How did you learn that it was not to be? Where were you, and who told you that actually these tests are leading nowhere?
0: We started to suspect it when that Friday, when we got that telegram, that we were not to go to Pensacola on Monday. Then we kept up our hopes, and when Janie and Jerry appeared before Congress, And it was kind of dashed. And we found out that Lyndon Johnson had wrote, stop this now. Then we knew that, you know, it would be a few years. Sarah, who was the telegram from? I'm trying to think. I don't have it in front of me right now. I don't know if it was from Jerry Cobb or it might have been from Dr. Lovelace.
4: Well, how did you react to the decision not to let you and your 12 colleagues fly? Did you feel bitter, or did you think, well, this is just the way things are in 1961?
0: I just felt kind of depressed. But, you know, for every door that closes, two open. And I just figured, keep on flying and keep up with your life.
4: Well, then that prompts me to ask, what were the two doors that opened?
0: Well, I went back to my father's business, and I went in the antique business, and then I went on to accounting.
4: Finally, Sarah, the subject that we're discussing today in this program is whether or not we should go back to the moon and why we haven't gone back to the moon since Apollo and, and Gene Cernan stepped off the lunar surface. Do you think we should go back to the moon? Or?
0: If we can prove something or accomplish something by going back to the moon, yes. You know, a lot of the things that have been developed in the space program have been brought down to the general public and enhanced our life. And if we can keep finding new things to help the average person, yes.
4: So even though the space program wasn't wasn't good to you back then, uh, you do support it and you do support our ambitions in space.
0: Yes, I would support the space program still. Eileen Collins invited us down for her launches and... That way we felt that we were not a complete failure, that we started a baseline for future women to get into the space program. And we felt that the baseline we established was where they went from there. Eileen Collins said that she stood on our shoulders. Well, we stood on the shoulders of the WASPs and the early women pilots to progress women along the way as we went.
4: Sarah Ratley, it is a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you.
3: Thank you
0: very much.
3: Sarah Ratley is one of the members of the Mercury 13.
4: That was the space program. Now we're left looking to the future. Is NASA planning on returning to the moon? And if not, who is? Well, let's put it this way. They take credit cards. Also, things have changed since NASA kept Sarah Ratley and the other women grounded. The agency has made space for everyone.
3: It's Are We Over the Moon on Big Picture Science. Okay, reality check. It's not 1961 anymore when Sarah Ratley and the rest of the Mercury 13 passed their flight tests but were told by NASA, stay home and on the ground. It's not 1969 when humans first set foot on the moon, nor is it 1972 when the last human boot lifted from its surface. We're 40 years past all that, more than a decade into the 21st century. So what we want to know
4: is where are our lunar ambitions and the space program going now? Well, here's one bellwether.
6: I'm Bob Richards. I'm CEO of Moon Express.
4: The private company Moon Express is counting on profit by going lunar and is the first enterprise to receive FAA approval to land on our natural satellite, which it plans to do in 2017.
6: I'm an orphan of Apollo. I was inspired with the first footprints on another world. Uh, ever since then, I've been thinking, how can we use the moon in our world in our economic environment. So where companies like SpaceX and Virgin and Blue Origin and x XCore and all these great companies that are building rockets that get us off the planet's surface, we're building the lander system that gets us slowing down and landing on the surface of another world. That's what doesn't exist right
3: now. And what is it that you would advocate we should do when we go to the moon? I mean, obviously, I'd like to go to the moon. I bet there are a lot of people who'd like to go to the moon, but I can't afford to go to the moon. There's got to be some sort of, uh, you have to monetize this some way. You can't just say, uh, we'll take you to the moon just to pay us $10 million.
6: Well, that's right. So we are a part of something called the Google Lunar X Prize, and Google is offering $30 million for the first private company to reach the surface of the moon with a robot and send back high-definition images and video. Not a bad deal. The thing is, it's going to cost way more than that to get to the moon. So Moon Express and others are coming up with a monetization business plans that would make sense for a private company to invest the dollars necessary to get to the moon. In Moon Express's case, the investors believe in the long-term economic viability of lunar resources to benefit our
3: economies on Earth and for our future in space. Can you give me some specifics? What have they got there? got a lot of craters. Uh, They've got a lot of dust. What, what have they got that's, that you can monetize?
0: Well,
6: when I was a boy, we thought the moon was a dead, dry rock, right? What possible use could it be? But in recent years, just in the past couple of decades, we've learned that the moon is a world with vast resources, and there's water on the moon and water is like the oil of the solar system. It creates the economics, not just because it supports life, but its constituents, hydrogen and oxygen, are the elements of rocket fuel. So the moon is like a gas station in the sky. Also, the moon has been bombarded by asteroids for billions of years. So everything that is an enriched Earth, all the platinum group metals and all the precious resources that came to Earth from space, have also been deposited on the moon. The difference is, The Moon was a body that cooled much faster in its early evolution than the Earth, so likely these elements are very near or on its surface and far more accessible than mining on Earth. So we can actually mine the Moon in a way that doesn't devastate our environment here on Earth.
3: So a lot of valuable stuff on the Moon, including water, which of course is probably more valuable in space than it is here on the Earth, but are are you going to bring this stuff back to the Earth? Is that where you're going to sell it? So, yes, uh, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, In
6: the early stages, we hope in our third mission by 2020, one of the holy grails of our company is to bring back a sample from the moon. Um, It's going to be worth more than the cost of getting it. It's not going to bring a huge return on investment back to the investors, but it's proving a principle that a private sector can go to the moon, bring something back, and set the case law that allows us to say that we own this and we're allowed to sell it. That will set the stage for the mining ventures of the future.
3: Bob Richards is the CEO of Moon Express. His company appreciates the role of the private sector in going to the moon. Economic incentive is also prompting countries such as China and India to vie for space-time, along with such traditional motives as science and prestige. So the reasons we want to go to the moon have a slightly different emphasis since the days when Captain Gene Cernan stepped off its surface.
4: Other things have changed, too. More than half of the graduating class of astronauts in 2013 were women, and some may go to Mars. NASA has made space for everyone. The question is, has it made room for the moon in its future travel plans?
3: It's a lot to get caught up on. Luckily, planetary scientist Dan Durda from the Southwest Research Institute and an astronaut applicant himself is on our launch pad. Okay, Dan, let's start with that last point. Present your case for why we should return to the moon.
7: Oh, fantastic. Well, you know, Apollo missions 45 years ago really only showed us the questions to start asking about the origin of the moon, the timing of the bombardment of the accretion of the planets, The moon is uniquely placed, it's the one body in the solar system that holds the keys to the chronology of the dynamics of the entire outer solar system, and the time scales for the origin of life on the Earth, all of these clues are there on the moon, free for the taking, and it's right next door.
3: Well, you've argued very convincingly that there are good scientific reasons for going to the moon, so why hasn't it figured in with NASA's plans for space? I don't hear NASA talking very much about the moon.
7: Well, um, it did about 10 years ago or so. We had a, actually a rather well-architected plan to return not just to the moon, but to all of space, um, the moon being the first stop. Unfortunately, as well-architected, I think, as that plan was done, it wasn't as well, unfortunately, supported by both the administration and Congress from a funding perspective to actually execute that plan. That architecture was basically shut down in favor of sort of regrouping and trying to see what else we might do. And so I think we had a good plan in place, and I think it was a good natural plan, and I'd like to see us return to something like that again.
3: All right. Well, let's look at the intentions of some other countries, since it's been a while since the only two players were the U.S. and the <laughs> Soviet Union. China and India have launched hardware into space. Uh, let's start with China. It, it has a rover, or had a rover, U-2, uh, on the moon. It's no longer functioning. What, what became of that mission? What are they doing now? The Chang'e 3
7: mission, which is the lander and rover you're referring to, uh, it's just a natural progression in China's plans for getting to the moon. They had the Chang'e one and 2 orbiters around the moon in 2007 and 2010. Chang'e 3 was their first lander. Chang'e 5 is in preparation now for the fall of 2017. We may see uh, yet another Chinese lander on the moon, but this one will go beyond just a lander and a rover. They're going to actually attempt a sample return to return some moon rocks and moon dirt and bring it back to the Earth. So it's a natural progression in their ultimate goals to putting a person on the moon sometime perhaps in the 2020s or 2030s.
3: Well, these plans might be the best thing for us, right? I mean, it might galvanize the public, if not the Congress, to do something about our own moon efforts, might it not? Well, I would hope so. Um, You know, more power to the Chinese. Welcome to the
7: club. You know, congratulations on missions well done. But I hope it does galvanize us to pay a little bit more attention to, look, you know, if other nations, China, India, other nations on the planet are thinking that this is a smart thing to be doing to show the prowess of those countries in that kind of technology, I would hope it would galvanize us to pay a little bit more attention and show the importance of staying in the game, as it were.
3: Well, what about the interests of these other countries? You mentioned India. They certainly have an interest in the moon. Are are they doing this for legitimate scientific investigation, or is it national prestige, or most likely it's probably both? But, I mean, what, what is the driver here?
7: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In addition to the science and the, just the overall national prestige, I think those capabilities translate ultimately. I mean, it's going to be the ultimate high ground economically as well, space, the moon, Mars, uh, the asteroids. The nations and commercial entities that can operate in space and take advantage of the economic benefits there as our technological capabilities make that affordable and economically viable. There are resources to be had out in space, whatever they may be, whether they're some sort of metal resources or helium 3 for fusion reactors, you know, someday in the future. Maybe it's water that we mine out of the moist rocks out of uh, primitive asteroids or comets. Once that time comes where it's cheaper to get those resources in space, it'll become a natural thing to be operating that way.
3: And and is that what the American company Moon Express has on their mind? They just completed the paperwork to become the first private company to receive FAA approval to land on the moon. Are they in it for the uh, minerals? Ultimately, I think, yes,
7: they've in fact publicly stated that. Initially, it may not be the mining interests that are the initial profits for them. It may be a little bit of a tourism thing. I know they've expressed interest in basically doing burials on the moon, sending people's cremated remains to the surface of the moon. There are folks who will pay for these sorts of things, and that will be the entree to making the economy of scale worth it to be able to do other things on the moon. And it's going to be a slow transition, but it will be a transition, I think, that we will ultimately make.
3: Yeah, I I remember seeing advertising materials years ago about having your remains, or at least some tiny fraction of them. I don't think they would send your whole cremated body, but they would send some bit of ash to the moon for the right price. I mean, cremated... To creator, it seems like a kind of an expensive proposition, but for some people, apparently it was appealing. So.
7: Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's just one example. I mean, I'm sure there are things that we haven't even thought of yet that some people will find interesting enough to put out their dollars to go and pay to go and do this thing on the moon, whatever that thing may be. Maybe it's going to be the entertainment industry, you know, television, live action, whatever it can be. There are folks with some pretty good imaginations who will find those things that people will pay for to be able to do in space.
3: If you look, uh, say, 20 years into the future, Dan, would you say that the majority of the effort will still be governmental in terms of exploration of the moon and answering some of the science questions that it could answer? Or is it going to be mostly private enterprise that's dealing with the moon? Well, I think and I would hope, actually, it will be a very
7: natural mixture of both. There will always be a role for federal government investment in answering the big questions and pushing the frontier you know sometimes when you are asking those basic scientific questions there's not necessarily a profit motive behind that at the moment and so that's the role for the federal government but then once the government has paved the way to do that let those commercial entities that are good at the trucking right the transportation back and forth the -the run-of-the-mill day-to-day operations hand that over to the private companies to make way and free up your budget for the federal government to go on and press the frontiers
3: all right well politically culturally the winds have changed since Apollo and only men flew into space and the Mercury 13 women other women were denied their wings in those days I I think the change when NASA pushed to make space for everyone came with the shuttle program is that correct
7: It seems to be. Certainly when the first astronaut class of that new generation, the shuttle generation of astronauts, as that class was selected in 1978, we saw this transition to a mix where it really doesn't matter whether you're white or black or a man or a woman. You know what we really are looking for are people who are really, really good at what they do. And if you're really good at what you do, you're going to be of great benefit to this overall enterprise of expanding our frontier off into space, and that's what NASA is looking at.
3: Yeah, well, I think that at least four women are part of the Mars program. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And that half the astronaut class of 2013 was women,
7: too. Yeah, that's right. The 2013 class of astronauts, there were eight people selected, and four of them were women.
3: I think from the public's point of view, they're undoubtedly thinking, well, NASA's focused on the next trip, and that's the one to Mars. But then again, the moon might figure in any effort to send people to Mars as a stepping stone.
7: Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, Mars is a beckoning planet. It's an amazing planet um, ripe for exploration and popularity of movies like The Martian from the very popular book just show that pent-up interest in setting off for a new frontier like that. I think the reality is, unfortunately, that Mars is going to be a rather difficult thing to do. Not impossible, certainly doable, but definitely difficult. And I think, in my opinion, it makes sense to you know start with something that is a little bit more attainable where you're going to learn the techniques and the technologies is going to take to actually go on to go to some place like mars and with the moon right next door it's that sort of natural base to you know extend from what we learned during apollo what we've learned in low earth orbit with the international space station in the meantime you know what it takes to keep people alive in space for long periods of time and i think it makes sense to go back to the moon learn how to work on the surface of a alien environment like that in a very you know harsh environment step out from there to beyond near-Earth space, start to learn how to do those deep-space extended missions, perhaps with uh, small near-Earth asteroids that'll effectively be stepping stones to Mars, if you will. And as we've learned all of those capabilities and techniques, Mars will then naturally fall into place as we're ready to go there.
3: Well, finally, Dan, I believe that you applied to be an astronaut about a dozen years ago. Give me your thoughts on visiting the moon in general, in particular. I mean, look, Earth is a bit unusual in having such a large nearby natural satellite that can tantalize us, that can lure us with its presence. So I ask you, why do you really want to go to the moon? Sure, there are all these questions about the origin of the solar system, but there must be something else.
7: Yeah, you know, the intellectual reasons, of course, are to help answer those big questions. But the personal reasons, the fascination of operating in a very complex, real-time, operational environment, but doing so in a way that's contributing to a bigger purpose, something grander than yourself. You're part of a team of people that are trying to solve a big problem. And being a part of that has always been a draw for me. And that was what kept me going for the ten years it took to finally get that interview for the astronaut office in 2003. Are you gonna go? Well, uh, not as part of a NASA crew, it doesn't look like. I'm getting to be a rather uh, older person these days. (laughs) But the options now commercially for getting into space eventually I think are blooming and I think my future looks pretty promising in that regard. So um, getting a view of the black sky and the curvature of the earth and that little thin blue line of our atmosphere, just the chance to see our beautiful biological miracle of a world that we live on from up and above, that's still keeping me going.
3: Dan Durda, thanks so very much for
7: being with us. You bet, Seth. Great to talk with you.
4: Dan Durda is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute. So a lot has changed since the space program began.
3: Well, indeed. It began as a a Cold War maneuver, really. And today, it's not just the exclusive province of governments. I mean, we have the private interest in this and the fact that the moon might be, in some sense, a cash cow for uh, private companies. That's new. I wonder what Captain Cernan and and other
4: astronauts think about that idea, where their motives for going were exploration for exploration's sake or for the prestige and, as you said, the political reasons, and now it may be for the bottom line.
3: Yeah, but it does raise some red flags, if you will. I mean, do you want the moon totally commercialized? I mean, that's one way to make it inexpensive to go to the moon if you have a whole industry developed to exploit the moon to take tourists there. But I
4: mean, You could be taking walks under the moonlight and the neon signs, yeah, the blinking the, neon signs.
3: Under the earth light, yes. You could be. But maybe that's the natural progression of things. People have said in the past that's the only way you're ever going to get travel in space to be affordable to many people.
4: But isn't there a desire to keep the moon as pristine as possible? Uh,
3: maybe for you, there are mm-hmm. a lot of people who, you know, say, "Hey, look! I mean, it's a giant resource. Let's use it, right?" <laughs> well, <laughs> it'd be great for astronomy, that's for sure.
4: How we regard the moon—it sounds like that's changed. Um, the space program has changed as well in terms of equality. Now we have half the graduating class of astronauts are, are women, and those women are not just trying to go to the moon; they're trying to go to Mars. So a lot has changed, in... Yes. Plus 40 years?
3: Yes. 50 years? Yes, women will be from Mars as well as from Venus. It's a very interesting development. <laughs> it's hard to think back to the time when that was considered a radical idea.
4: Well, it's not hard for Sarah Ratley to think back. I mean, yeah. it's, it's still quite vivid in her mind.
3: Uh, well, another interesting development is uh, who's going into space, you know. It used to be just the two superpowers, and now you have several other countries that are interested, and I'm sure, you know, uh, 10 years from now there'll be smaller countries that will be able to at least send hardware to the moon. <laughs>
4: We want to thank the duo who helped us produce this show and put up with our lunacy along the way, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: And thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks to you, our listeners.
4: Your ears have been attuned to the episode, Are We Over the Moon? I'm Molly Bentley.
3: I'm Seth Shostak.
4: If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find lots of episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you're into moon bounce experiments, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. What's a moon bounce experiment? Oh, that's when ham radio operators, amateur radio operators, aim a transmitter at the moon, bounce a signal off it, and then receive it.
4: And if you listen to our show, not via ham radio, but perhaps via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review of it on our iTunes page.
3: And to reach us directly with your comments, uh, be sure to throw in some faint praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. why some say the moon, why choose this as our goal? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To
0: quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.